whether intentional or not, the fact that they sang that song that he did it all for me is uh, just a perfect, perfect introduction to what we're going to talk about this morning out of Luke chapter 23. I don't know how to introduce this. I really don't. I'm just going to tell you what's on my mind. This is really more of what's from the heart, I guess, more than anything. I don't know if I'll ever convey this the right way to this, this morning or ever when I preach sections of scripture like this. But we are walking into, in this text, the heart of the gospel. The gospel, of course, being that Jesus, the, the God-man, comes to this earth, gives his life, just brutally taken from him, but he gives it willingly. Bleeds for my sins, is buried, and three days later comes back alive. And that's not just a historic fact, it is a historic fact, but it's a cosmic truth that transforms me. And what we're about to walk into is, if you could imagine walking into a, a building, and that building being the gospel, and we're going deeper and deeper into the, into the heart of the gospel. That's what this is. Again, I, I, I'm, I'm, my words will fail me. I just want you all to know, my words will fail me, so I'm going to let the text speak. But I want you to understand that I'm trying to get you to see that this is a weighty moment that we're, we're watching as we read this text. Something big is happening. It's painful. If you really will take it personal, it's actually kind of painful what Jesus is going through for me and for you. And, and by the way, the text we're reading here, they're not even beating him yet. They're not even... They're not even driving nails into his hands, but just the way they treat him and how he deserves none of it. It should, I hope, it'll get you to thinking, he did it all for me. That's what I hope you'll see. I think the best thing I can do is I'm going to ask the Lord to help me, and then let's just dive right in together. Will you all do that with me? Let's pray. Lord, I'd like to convey this truth to these people. I, I'll be surprised if they've not heard this before. You, you know if they have or not, but I'll be surprised. But Lord, I, I pray that even in this retelling of the old, old story, that you will bring to their hearts and minds a love for Jesus that they don't even understand where that came from. And I pray that we'll run into his arms, the one who is innocent, that died in my place. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're in Luke chapter 23, you'll see in verse 1 that the whole multitude of them arose and led him, Jesus, unto Pilate. Who's that whole multitude? Well, you can go back to verse 70, um, or rather verse 66 to verse 71, and you'll see this is a a group of elders within the Jewish uh, temple. Uh, they historically have been called the Sanhedrin. This is probably something about 70 people that have gathered together to stand in judgment over a bunch of different matters. 
They are dragging Jesus now after they have interrogated him, after they have had their conversation with him. They're now dragging him to the Roman authority, Pilate. But they're shocked. They're enraged. Look at what they say in verse 70. They said all. Jesus said something and they said all. I'm, I'm telling you, what, I, we have, I don't know, about three, 400 people here this morning. And... Um, <laughs> That's what we got, right? <laughs> no, seriously, we got maybe 30, 40 people here this morning, something like that. And we get those 30, 40 people here. And it, it would be amazing if we all at one time said something together. Think about the fact they had probably double what we have in this building right now. And together, the scripture says that they all together said this. And what they said is they are shocked. They said, are you saying you're the son of God? They're shocked by that. And that has got them so enraged that they now lead him in verse 1 to Pilate. And in verse 2, they begin to accuse him because they have been convinced. If you go to verse 71, they said, we don't need anything else. We've seen everything we need. They are convinced that Jesus is being blasphemous by saying he is God. What in the world are you doing? They are enraged by this. So they, they can't do anything about it, so they drag him to the court uh, of Pilate. In verse 2, they start to make these accusations. And here's the accusations. It's really a, a three-charge accusation. Just read this in verse 2. He says, uh, first number one, that, charge number one, they say, we found this fellow perverting the nation. What they're saying is this guy is going around and he is, he is putting this bug in everybody's ear. He's going around and he's turning the whole nation against Rome. That's what he's saying. That's the first thing. So he's perverting the nation. Second, second charge, forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. He's telling everybody they don't have to pay their taxes. That's, what he's, that's their second charge. Third charge, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. They are essentially saying to Pilate, never, now never mind that when they've been talking to him in the previous verses, they have been focused completely on the fact that he is a blasphemer, that he is saying he is a Messiah. They are saying that he is the son of man, that he is saying he's the son of God, all divine things. Never mind that. They're now taking him to court and saying, listen, he's inciting people against the government. He is anti-Caesar. He is trying to overthrow Rome. And they're accusing Jesus. Now, they begin in verse 2, I just read you those charges that they laid out, and they're relatively, they're not true, they're not true charges. If you go back and compare it against what Jesus actually did in, in his ministry and what he actually said, they're not true. But it, if you read it on the surface, they're, they're calm, they're logical, what they're saying. But those charges, that, that there's, those accusations that they're giving, they don't stop with calm and logical. Go, go down, I'm going to skip you all the way down to verse 5. They, this is the same people, the Sanhedrin, they were more fierce, saying. They were more fierce. I mean, those accusations, they get ramped up. I mean, these guys are getting charged up about this. What in the world? You've got to pay attention to this. And then goes on in verse 10, go all the way down to verse 10. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Uh, these people are now vigorous. They're intense. They're, I can imagine the, the veins on their neck are bulging out. You've got to charge this guy. They're angry about this. 
But it's not done. By the end of this story, they're going to have an, an opportunity that, that Pilate is going to give them an opportunity. Do I keep Barabbas, this criminal, or do I keep Jesus? And they're wanting Barabbas to be let go and they want Jesus to be crucified. Go all the way down to verse 23. And in this last piece, it says, and they were instant with loud voices requiring that he, Jesus, might be crucified. Now listen, they're sitting there and they are trying to get Jesus crucified. And look at what, they, there's all these people. This is not 70 people no more. This is probably hundreds, maybe even a thousand or more people gathered and shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Last phrase there. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. So those 70 Sanhedrin, they've gone from calm and logical to a little more fierce to now shouting louder than in a crowd to say, crucify him. I'm trying to get you to see that these people are violently accusing Jesus. This is not some stray accusation. This is not something they just filed a police report and then went home. These people are very, very intent on seeing Jesus to be charged with these things. So he's being violently charged. Now, let me just ask you, think to yourself, if you were charged with things like this or some other criminal charge, you're charged, you're standing in a courtroom, what would you say for yourself? Well, there's a number of responses that we might have, I imagine. I would have, I'll just tell you the kind of responses I would have, or I might get a good attorney to have for me, but nonetheless, I would have somebody try to answer this way. I might try to correct the facts. Uh, Jesus could easily say, I never said you don't need to pay your taxes. And if they would have went back to the record, Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26, and see what he said when approached about paying taxes. He never said, don't pay your taxes. He says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. He said, give to God what's God's. That's all he said. He was essentially saying, make sure your priorities are in order. He's not saying, don't pay taxes. That's what I would have said. I'm not correct, correct the record. I might have said, I might have appealed to my character or my nature. I would have said in Jesus's case, listen, guys, yeah, I said I was a Messiah, but I'm not a Messiah or a king like you understand. I'm a king. My kingdom is not of this world. I would have helped them understand that. Do you not understand this, folks? Because because I would have I've gone around healing people. How is that me trying to overthrow the government? I'm helping people. I would have explain the situation a little bit further. Here they're accusing him of trying to overthrow the government. And do you know what Jesus' message was? Prevailing message. Love God, love other people. He even says in Luke chapter uh, 10, I believe it is, or actually Luke 10 and Luke 6, he says, love your enemies as yourself. He says, actually love your enemies. Do good to them that, that hate you. How is that overthrowing the government? That is not, that's what I would say. These are the things I would do to defend myself. Of course, I'm saying this as if I'm innocent. But if I were not innocent, I might say, that wasn't me. <laughs> you got the wrong guy. There's somebody else, right? Okay, you act like y'all ain't never done nothing wrong. <laughs> Looking at you, you're surprised. Like, oh my goodness. What is Matthew doing in the court? Right. I know, I know what you're thinking. I just want you to, to put yourself in that situation like you've never been pulled over for a speeding ticket or anything. So you've got to imagine it, if you will. 
And what are you going to do? You're going to say something on your behalf, are you not? I mean, that's what I'm going to do. I imagine you would too. But what does Jesus say for himself? Go back to the text in verse 3. He's been accused in verse 2, and Pilate asks him. And the thing that Pilate keys keys off on is the fact that there's an accusation that he's king of the Jews. That would have been important to Pilate because if he truly is trying to position himself as the next king of the Israel, Israelite nation, we might actually have an insurrection on our hands. That's what he's thinking here. So he says, okay, who are you? And Jesus answers him. He says, he answered him and says, thou sayest it. Now, again, I want to make sure we hear what Jesus is actually saying. He's actually essentially saying, I agree with what you're, I agree with your assessment. That's the message that he's giving But as Jesus lists, or rather as Pilate looks at Jesus and assesses him, you're going to see in just a moment, he doesn't find a problem here. But nonetheless, what are, what is Jesus's defense of himself against these accusations? I don't know if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, like Jesus's words in red. You look at the rest of this chapter in this courtroom setting, you will only see three words in red. Thou sayest it. The only thing Jesus says in his defense is to literally agree with one of the accusations, which is to say, I am a king. I am the Messiah. I am the one who's come. He doesn't say anything. He literally says nothing at all to the next, uh, the next uh, uh, person, Herod. He's going to be up against Herod in just a moment. He says nothing to him. So here we have him being violently accused, but he is utterly silent before his accusers. But I, I want you to see this, this, this next, next point I want you to see is actually the thrust of Luke's account. Luke goes to great pains to put, put in front of us this next setting. And I'm just going to tell you what this is. Jesus is declared innocent. It didn't just say that Jesus is innocent. He is innocent. I'm saying that human leaders, human judges assess the situation, pagan, Gentile judges assess the situation and say, I don't see anything, I don't see a problem here. In fact, you you say here in verse verse, uh, four, after Jesus says to Pilate, yeah, I am the king of the Jews, basically. Verse four, Pilate said to the chief priest and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And that is an amazing thing to say because as I understand the historical accounts of Pilate, this was not a pushover. This was not a guy who was like, let me let all the bad guys go. No, he was looking for reasons to hurt people. He was a mean-spirited, hateful man. Yet here he looks at this man and he says, I'm just not really seeing a threat to the Roman Empire here. I don't see what you guys are seeing. I don't see the threat. Now, 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 Please understand, Jesus is a threat to the Roman Empire. Jesus is a threat to every human government. But as he's standing there, he is, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, you look at him and he was nothing to look at. You wouldn't even think anything of him. He was unassuming. He was just a, another guy on the street. And, and you look at him and, he, and you say, are you king of the Jews? And him saying, yeah. It'd be like me, somebody looking at me and saying, are, are, are you the, the one ruler of the universe? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm the ruler. I'm like, yeah, whatever, man. You're a joke. That's what 
people would have seen him, and that's what Pilate saw in him. And of course, that was not the answer that the people want. You go to verse 5, I already read some of this. They were more fierce. And they say to him, he stirreth up the people, reaching throughout Jewry, beginning from Galilee to this place. Now, when they said he had been through all of, all of the area, all the way up to Galilee, that was a key, that was kind of a, a note for um, uh, Pilate to say, huh, maybe I can get a second opinion. Because, you got to understand this, Pilate, he's got Judea. That's his realm of influence. Herod was the guy in Galilee. And he says to himself, I am imagining, huh, let me go get another guy's opinion on this. Now, some people, if you read the, some of the guys who kind of uh, scholars and things like this, some people might say, well, he's just trying to pawn Jesus off on Herod. Maybe. I don't think that's the case. But I think it was a kind of thing where he says, in fact, he even says in verse six, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man was Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged in Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod who himself also was at Jerusalem at the time. I think it was a matter of convenience. You've got Herod who's local. It's also a thing of, you know what? That's actually his jurisdiction. So he might have a different opinion of it because he knew more about what's going on up in, Ju in Galilee. But the point is, he says, I'm going to send him over to Herod for a second opinion just to make sure we're good, good on this. And, and you got to think about this. Pilate is a political person. He knows if he makes the wrong call on this, if he gets, the wrong, gets this wrong, he's going to be back on him. So he thought, let me get somebody else to weigh in on this thing. So if you go down to verse 8, Herod sees Jesus and he's exceeding glad for he was desirous to see him for a long season because he had heard many things of him and he hoped to have seen some miracles done by him. Now Herod is kind of excited because he's heard stories about Jesus, but he doesn't, he's never really seen him in person. That's the indication of the text. But it's interesting. Remember I told you, what does Jesus say? Nothing. Go to verse nine. When he, Herod, questions Jesus in many words, but he answered him nothing. Jesus doesn't even answer the man. That would be infuriating to me, just, just frankly. If I'm asking you a question, I mean, it's one thing to evade my questions. It's another thing to, to sort of say, I don't have anything to say, but it sounds as if Jesus, and Her or rather Jesus' response to Herod is silence. Oh my goodness. Well, the response that Herod has is he's pretty upset about this. Go to verse 11. Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him with a gorgeous robe and sent him back again to Pilate. He's upset about it. So what they do is they start making fun of Jesus. He's not going to respond. We're just going to mock him. They put a robe on him. Oh, he's the king of the Jews. They're, they're mocking him, making fun of him. Um, and, and they say, just send him back. Now, he doesn't overturn Pilate's decision. If you go to verse 12, that same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together for before they were at enmity between themselves. So what, what's the answer of this? In fact, even Pilate suggests this later that Herod validated what he had to say. The point of this is to simply say, when Herod meets Jesus, he doesn't come back with, and he has every reason to, he's mad at him. He's upset with Jesus, but he has no, he doesn't say, nope, he's not. He doesn't say, nope, he's guilty. No, what does he say? Not guilty. I don't see any problem here. What are y'all talking about? So then... Pilate, in verse um, 
13 gets everybody back together, the chief priests and the rulers of the people, the Sanhedrin. And in verse 14, he reiterates his innocence. Look at what he says, verse 14. Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people. And I, and behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him. And lo, nothing worthy of death is done in him, unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. He says in so many words, there's no reason we need to kill this man. There's no reason to do anything. He is innocent. What you're telling me is wrong with him, there is not wrong with him. Now, if you've ever, if you know anything, if you've ever watched Matlock, you know how this stuff works, right? You know how this works. You get charged with something, and then you have a, a trial, and there's an innocent or guilty, and if you're guilty, then you're sentenced. In broad strokes, that's kind of what happens, right? Okay? So, what happens if you say, bad charges, but not guilty? What's the sentence? There's no sentence, right? Let him go home. Go home. In fact, I'm sorry for the inconvenience, sir, because you're not guilty, right? If you're guilty, on the other hand, there's a sentence. That might be anything from a fine to some time in jail to uh, death, depending on the crime, right? So here we have a situation where there's been charges. There has been a trial of sorts. Is there innocent or guilty? And we've seen it come back three distinct times. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Every time. And there's nothing wrong here. But now what happens is Jesus is sentenced. Unjustly sentenced. There's no other way to say this because you don't get sentenced if you're innocent. At least that's not what I want. I hope that doesn't happen. If they say, not guilty, now let's go and put him in the electric chair. What? Hang on a minute. I thought I was innocent. But what is happening to Jesus? Well, he says, Herod's, or rather Pilate says, I'm going to chastise him and release him. And it says in verse 17, for of necessity, he must release one of them at the feast. Now, I want to make a little comment here, uh, partly just so y'all know, I did read a book or two and did a little bit of study on this, but also I think it's interesting to note. Uh, it's not the gist of this, but it's interesting. It depends on who you read after. There are some people who will question whether this actually happened. Is this a historic event or not? There's some scholars who will do that, as you can imagine. There's always some scholars going to question everything in the Bible. Um, the, the, uh, the upshot I'm going to tell you, I think this happened, but the point I want you to get at here is Remember I told you about Pilate? He's a nasty dude. He just, he likes to hurt people. He likes to do bad things. He's a mean fellow. But what he has gotten here, whether he's the one that invented it or a predecessor of his, he is like to do this apparently around the, um, the Passover time. He would put two criminals up and he'd let one go as kind of a peace offering to the people. And he would kind of let the people decide. That was his decision. Again, there are people who say, well, that never actually happened. I believe it actually happened. I believe it actually happened. We can, we can have a fist fight in the parking lot afterwards. Uh, that's, I, I'm not going to fight you. I'll run the other way. I'm just joking. Please, y'all 
Stay with me now. All right. <laughs> but that was, his, that was the thing that he decided to do. He was going to do this. So in verse 17, he knows he's going to release somebody. So think about this. You're a, you're a bad character to begin with. You don't like these people, but you're just trying to keep them satisfied. So who are you going to let go? Well, the guy that you've already decided was innocent. He's an easy let go, right? Why not? No harm. I can, I can crucify the guy who's actually a criminal. We'll see in just a moment. Who's actually an insurrectionist against the governor, a government. And I can let this guy go. No harm, no foul. Rome won't matter. Herod's already told me he's cool. We're good, right? That's his thinking. That's the mentality that he has. So it was an easy decision. But they, the Sanhedrin, cried out all at once saying, away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. Now, what's funny about Barabbas is it says in verse 19, he is a certain, uh, for, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Barabbas was literally guilty, charged, and found guilty of the exact same charges they were trying to bring against Jesus. Do you see that? They were, they were saying, we're all upset because Jesus is trying to overthrow the government. And Pilate says, well, I got one here that we know is guilty. So I'm going to let Jesus go. Is that okay with you guys? You would think if you're really upset about the Roman government, you want to make sure nobody's overthrowing the government. You're like, fine. You know he's guilty. Good. We'll let him go. We're not sure about this one. Let him, let him go. We're going we're gonna to crucify this one we know is guilty. That would be the mentality. But no, what do they say? Pilate's therefore, verse 20, willing to release Jesus spake unto them, but they cried, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus, by the, by the crowd, they are, let me say this again. Jesus is being sentenced by the crowd to be crucified. They know he is innocent. They have had validation that he is innocent. The one that is going to be Charged, who's already been found guilty, is guilty of the exact same crimes. But they say, no, we want Jesus to be crucified. And they say, verse 22, Pilate says a third time, what evil hath he done? I found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were instant with their loud voices that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and the chief priest prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. Pilate sentences Jesus to death, the one who is innocent of the very charges that the one who is guilty was also guilty of. But Jesus is the one that is sentenced to those crimes. He released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Jesus is falsely accused and fully innocent, but he is sentenced to be crucified. All I'm trying to get you to see, one is the, the story. I hope the story has come through clear to you. But I need you to understand the whole point of this because that is true. Jesus is standing in your place throughout all of this. The accusations that came against Jesus are true of you. Jesus never rebelled. Do you know that? You go back through the, the Gospels. He's never shown any form of rebellion. 
I mean, even the, he's saying, I'm being subject to the Father's will. But even the government authorities, the temple authorities, he doesn't rebel against them. He speaks truth to them. He says what is true, but he's never rebellious. He never shakes his fist in their face. But you and I, you know what's right and wrong. And I don't know everything you've done. You know. But I can guarantee you, you chose wrong more than you chose right. And you knew what it was wrong. The thing that gets people's back up more than anything. I mean, I can tell you, I can, I can stand in a pulpit and I can preach to you about how much God loves you and y'all gonna love that. I can preach to you how much Jesus is good and kind and gonna provide all your needs and y'all gonna love that. But the minute that I open up a passage and the Bible says, you need to do this or stop doing that. You know what happens? I'm, this is just human. It's not y'all particularly. It's just everybody. You know what we do? Whew, I don't know about that. That's not my interpretation. I don't agree with you, preacher. I don't like what you're saying. Why is that? Because we don't like authority over us. We are rebels. You are a rebel usurping sovereign authority. Not this preacher's authority because I got no authority over you. But there's a God in heaven that has authority. And you want to usurp his authority over you. And what those accusations that those priests are trying to level against Jesus, I need you to know that those are all true of you. Yet Jesus stands there receiving those accusations in your place. And I told you he was silent. Remember that? He's silent. You know why he was silent? I would be tempted to deny, deflect, to excuse, to explain, to beg, to appeal. I'd say anything. I'd lie. If it would help me, I'd do whatever I could. I'd get in that last word. But Jesus stands before a jury of your peers. And he says the only thing that could be said on your behalf. And you know what that is? Absolutely nothing. If we're honest and God were to accuse us of the crimes that we have done against him, and they are many, you know what we have to say for ourselves? Honest answer, not a thing. That's why Jesus, in fact, it's even prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 7, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And I believe that the reason Jesus stood there is not because he was ignorant. He knew better. He knew everything. He knows everything. It's not because he didn't have anything to say. He knew. He could say he could literally call down angels from heaven to change the circumstances. It's not because he didn't have things to defend himself because I can tell you Jesus was wrongly accused and he could have more eloquently than I could ever imagine defend himself. But he stood there in my place, received those accusations and was silent because I've got nothing to say. You've got nothing to say for yourself. And his sentence was endured for your sins. He was completely innocent. There was not even a court of that day, and I would argue not any day, that could ever convict him. Pilate says there's no fault in him. Pilate says there's nothing worthy of death in him. There's no evil, no cause of death in him. We have more in common with Barabbas, who has been found guilty, who has been absolutely charged with appropriate charges, standing, waiting, not just the sentence, but the execution of the sentence. That's who we have in common with is Barabbas. But who is crucified? Jesus. 
for us. And who's released? I'm released. You're released. The only thing that we can do with this truth and this reality is to embrace his sacrifice for us. There's an innocent man. I want you to think about this. There was, and this I believe this to be an absolute historic truth that is true of every person that's hearing my voice right now. There was an innocent man who died for you. There was an innocent man who stood trial, was not guilty, but stood trial and accepted every bit of guilt for you. What are you going to do about that? It's possible for us to say, well, too bad. <laughs> Let him do it. Let him enjoy it. I, you know, oh, well. And that's, that, you know what that sounds like? Sounds like a criminal who wants to get off with some more crimes. That's what that sounds like to me. And I think what we need to understand is that there was a innocent man who died in our place. We can do one of two things. We can add to our crimes and say, let me see what else I can get away with. Or we can say, I accept his gift, his sacrifice for me, and we can walk in liberty the liberty that he paid for with his blood. Instead, what, we, instead, what too many of us are doing is saying, well, he did that. I'm going to see what else I can get away with. That's the wrong answer. Are we going to continue, Christians, are you going to continue in the sin that Jesus died for? I mean, do you understand that sin that you struggle with, that thing that, that, thing that you just wish wasn't true about you? And you try your best to fight it and you put all kinds of things in place to, to stop it and, and, and you, you try whatever you're trying and you just can't break it and can't shake it. And sometimes we like it a little more than we'd like to admit that we like it. That's what Jesus was put on the cross for. That's why he died. And what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? Are you just going to say, well, let me keep trying. I'm as good as I can be. It's the best I can do. Are you literally going to say, Jesus died for my sins. I'm going to take the power of the Holy Spirit and kill that sin in my life. You understand that Jesus is God in the flesh. And there's no, way of, no two ways about it, but he was fully and completely innocent of everything that you could ever imagine that, was, that could be charged against him. And he died in your place. Let me read this to you over in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. That great high priest, of course, is Jesus, the Son of God. And seeing that, we need to hold fast to our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knew exactly what the human condition was like. He knew exactly what he's walking through. Jesus is not stupid. He knew everything that happens in Luke 23, it was understood and known before the foundations of the world. And Jesus knew exactly what he was walking into. 
He knew all of those things and he knew how people would reject him and he knew how people would hate him and he knew how people would kill him. And of course, God, because he is sovereign, he used that to his, to his, to, to accomplish his plan. Understand that. But what I'm trying to get you to see is he knew all those things. And I can tell you, if I'd have known that, I'd have come in there and I'd have took care of some business because I don't like people trapping me. Forgive me, but that's Matthew's attitude. Did I tell you I needed somebody to die for my sins too? I just need you to know that's sin, what I just said. Jesus knew those things. Knowing them, everything about those things, and yet what does he do? He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You're probably sitting there saying, well, Matthew, what's your point? I'm trying to get you to this point that because he was God in the flesh, because he was fully innocent, because he died in our place, because he, he knew exactly what was going to happen, yet he did it anyway, and he was perfect in every way that he did it, we can, Hebrews 4.16, come boldly to the throne of grace. We can obtain mercy. We can find grace to help in the time of need. So I'm going to give you two invitations here. If you're not a believer, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, there's an innocent man who died for you so your sins can be forgiven. Will you embrace his sacrifice? Will you say, I believe in what Jesus did? Will you do that this morning? Christian, you say, I've already been saved. Thank you for that. Are you going to wallow in the mess of your sin? saying, yep, one of these days, God's going to take me out of this. Or are you instead going to say, my Savior died for me. I now, because of that, I can boldly go to his throne. I can find the mercy. I can find the help. And I'm going to seek his face. And say, thank you for, for dying for me, doing something I could never do for myself. But now I need your help again. I need your help with the sin that is still besetting me. I'm going to invite you, Christian, to come and ask the Lord boldly. You died for my sins. Will you help me with the sins that I continue to struggle with? I'm going to ask you to stand. Vanessa's going to come and play. And I'm going to invite you to come and pray. You can do that where you stand. You're welcome to come down front. I'm going to stand right down front for just a moment. If you need someone to pray with you, you come on. And I'll be glad to do that. Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for the fact that you were perfect. You are perfect. You will always be perfect in every way. And thank you for being my replacement, my propitiation. The one who comes when I could not, could not handle it. And I pray, Lord, that you will... Please encourage these people to come to your throne and ask for that mercy, that, that help that they need. I'm asking in Jesus' name. Amen.